Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Today's show is sponsored by Atlas Technica. Staying ahead of the technology curve for investment organizations takes more expertise than ever before. Atlas Technica takes this entire burden off your shoulders. Atlas is an industry-leading managed service provider that's helped over 100 firms adopt the public cloud. By offering white-glove IT services and a first-rate customer experience, Atlas has quickly become a trusted partner to the alternative investment industry. To get started, visit atlastechnica.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Janice Henderson Investors. In an environment where allocators face more questions than answers, having a trusted partner is critical. Janice Henderson Investors is committed to building partnerships with institutional investors based on collaboration, insights, and transparency. With 26 offices and 350 investment professionals worldwide, Janice Henderson has the scale to offer global perspective across equities, fixed income, and alternatives, and the depth to offer local expertise and support for clients. 
To learn more about partnering with Janice Henderson, visit JaniceHenderson.com slash institutional. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from A16Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, Past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the fourth episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World is Fabrice Grinda, entrepreneur, angel investor, and founder of FJ Labs, a venture capital firm that backs a diversified portfolio of startups in marketplace businesses. The firm takes a founder-friendly, non-institutional approach, employing heuristics to formulate quick decisions. Our conversation covers Fabrice's path as a serial entrepreneur and lessons learned building and investing in marketplaces. We discuss FJ Labs' unique investment process focused on four investment heuristics and expeditious decision-making. We then turn to its position in the venture ecosystem and investable themes in the coming years. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Going into this year, we'd love your help spreading the word about the show. So each week, right in this spot, we're going to give you a fun little reason why. Before we get going, I have the distinct pleasure of offering you a rare opportunity to join the one percenters. You see, around 1% of listeners have offered up their feedback with a review and rating on iTunes. 
If you enjoy the show, please take a moment and seize the opportunity to join the one percenters by hopping on iTunes, rating the show, and writing a brief review. It'll help other people find the show, and I thank you for it. Please enjoy my conversation with Fabrice Grinda in the fourth episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Fabrice, great to see you. Likewise. I'd love to start with your original path to entrepreneurship. It happens like many of these things through happenstance. When I was 10 in 1984, my parents got me a computer, though at my request, and it was love at first click. Instantaneously, I knew I'd found my passion. I immediately started taking it apart, building computers. I was connecting to built-in board services with the modems back in the day, so the pre-internet, if you want. And I was hooked because it was a passion. And it was not like, oh, based on a macroeconomic analysis of future trends, clearly this <laughs> is a category that will be huge in the future and I need to learn this. I was like, no, I love this. And it kind of led to entrepreneurship because first... I realized I loved building computers, and so I started assembling them. Then I started selling them to my classmates. Then I built a bulletin board. And through reading and studying about it, I started following the lives of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And in a way, they became the role models. And by the time I went to college, I knew I wanted to be in tech, and I knew I wanted to be a tech founder. In fact, I had a very famous moment when I was in France in high school. And I was winning all the Olympiads. I skipped all these grades. And so I got the opportunity to interview for the top French school. And the main professor there asked me, so what do you want to do when you graduate and when you grow up? And I'm like, well, I want to be an entrepreneur like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And the guy looked at me. He's like, what? You would betray the ideals of the French socialist revolution. <laughs> I literally burst out laughing. I'm like, hey, US, here I come. And so when you got out of school then, how did you decide how to participate in this world? I went to Princeton and I studied economics rather than computer science because it explained to me the way the world worked. But I went to Princeton having no money coming from France. And so I actually built my first reasonably small company there exporting high-end computer from the US to Europe to pay for it. When I graduated, I knew I wanted to be in tech and there were three choices. And to answer the question, choice number one is I could build a startup. Choice number two is I could join a startup. And both of these, I felt that if I built a startup at 21, not connected, I was shy and introverted. I'd never really managed a team, even though I'd built companies before. They were all like sole proprietorships. I probably would fail. And if I joined one being 21, I would not necessarily be taken seriously. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to McKinsey. It's a business school, except they pay you. And it was actually useful. I learned oral and written communication skills, learned to work in teams, and learned what I felt I had to learn. And then at the age of 23, felt it was time. I left McKinsey. Then uh, time had come to go and build my first startup. And what was that? So my first startup was in eBay for Europe. It was a company called Auckland. And as a 23-year-old with very limited capital, not well-connected to the Valley or the entrepreneurial or the VC community, and not having that much experience is what can I build? And the problem is if you want to build Amazon, you need billions of dollars of capital. You need supply chain management skills. If you want to build E-Trade, you need a banking license. When you build a marketplace like eBay, you have a unique set of problems of matching supply and matching demand. It just so happened it was a set of problems I was particularly well attuned to solving because I'd studied market design in college. And so it was kind of the application of everything I'd studied in college. And so when I came across the eBay website, by coincidence, they then instantaneously released their S1 to go public. And that became the basis of my business plan. I was like, this is genius. It provides liquidity in an otherwise opaque and fragmented market. It creates and unleashes an extraordinary amount of value. And they're not going to Europe anytime soon. Let's go and do this in France and the rest of Europe. And so what happened? 
So first few months were rather difficult because the bubble had not yet inflated there and people didn't take a 23-year-old seriously. And I needed <laughs> like millions of capital to get liquidity going. But, you know, you fake it until you make it. So I built an extraordinary website. I really copied their approach in terms of having a sales team dedicated to category, category manager for coins, for stamps, for collectibles. And by the time we launched, we had more items and then more liquidity than anywhere else. It's also a compelling story. A young French prodige who goes to the U.S., finishes up at Princeton, goes to McKinsey, comes back to France to bring the internet. So pretty quickly became like the mascot of the French internet revolution. Cover of every magazine, 8 o'clock news lots of free PR. So of course, got a bunch of VCs to fund me. I raised $18 million in June 99. We started doing crazy TV ads. We had a TV ad where to demonstrate the concept of an auction, we had a building on fire and people screaming for help. And the firemen get there and then someone in the night screams, $2. These ridiculous prices. And then an auction starts going, $4 (laughs) on the left, $8 on the right. And then uh, an old lady screams, $200. And the crowd goes, $200, going once, going twice, gone. And then she jumps out and she's falling and falling. Someone screams into the night, $210. And all the firemen run away. (laughs) And (laughs) in France, it was kind of a socialist community. Uh, We had the saying, which was, Anything can be bought. It's a matter of price. The ad wanted TV, massive sensation. We got banned for a while. I went on all the talk shows, defending freedom of speech. It was super fun. The company did really, really well. And we sold it to a publicly traded competitor called QXL Ricardo. Sadly, after the bubble burst, the stock of that company fell by 99.98%. Went from a 10 billion market cap to a 30 million market cap and ultimately made essentially nothing from this. Well, $700,000, but I'd started with $300,000 from the profits from the prior companies, which I'd invested in Intel, Microsoft, Yahoo, and Amazon, which had done rather well and were the seed funding for the company. So it did okay. Zero to hero, back to zero again in a three-year time period. So all of a sudden, I'm 26. And I thought long and hard what to do. Of course, I could go back to McKinsey, but it felt a little bit silly. Uh, I could go to business school, but like they were writing case studies what I was doing in business school, so it didn't make any sense. And I need to think through new constraints. Now I know what I'm doing. I know how to manage a team. But we live in a world where capital is no longer available, where even though month earlier, I was receiving binding term sheets from VCs by fax, VCs I never even met. I mean, which is mind boggling. I mean, that, that's a bubble. I mean, today's frothy, but that's a bubble when people you haven't met are like <laughs> committing tens of millions of dollars to a project they really know nothing about except what they've read on the press. And the valuations were mind bogglingly insane. And by the way, we were all aware it was a bubble. So all of a sudden the bubble bursts, there's no capital. And so I'm like, I want to be a tech entrepreneur. I like creating something out of nothing. I liked being in tech and expressing my creativity through that process of bringing something to life. And so I would like, what can I build in 2001 with essentially only the capital I had left and nothing else? And in order to be a tech founder, I was willing to compromise on everything else. And so I noticed that in the rest of the world, in Europe and in Asia, mobile content, especially ringtones, were very, very popular and then not yet come to the US for a variety of reasons. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to build a ringtone company going after the US market. So I came back to New York in 2001 and launched a ringtone company. It was really difficult at first. For two years, every VC I called saying I'm doing B2C telecom. I don't think I finished the sentence that hung up because every B2C company like <laughs> Pets.com, Webvan had all gone under. All the telco companies like MCI WorldCom had gone under. 
even the phone operators, the telcos, AT&T, uh, Singular, T-Mobile were not ready to do this yet. And the music companies didn't think this was a business yet. So they didn't want to give you licenses. It took two and a half years of knocking on the doors, being present, finding ways in to do delivery, to get through the door. And so for two and a half years, I basically lived in New York on $2 a day. I slept on the couch at the office. I couldn't even afford coffee. I, I lived off the ramen noodles that, <laughs> and literally could afford nothing else. I missed payroll 27 times. I raised 1.4 million, but I was raising it in like four and five 10K increments. Eventually, I'd always find someone to pay. And so I put every last penny I had. I borrowed 100,000 of my credit cards until, of course, I ran out of credit. In April of 2003, I stopped paying employees for three months in a row. Now, something happens when you stop paying employees for three months in a row. They stop showing up for work. So <laughs> we went from 27 to 7. But the good news is at that point, I'd actually laid the foundations of our success. I'd signed all the major licensing agreements. I'd signed all the major operators. And it was a question of like the market getting there. And it became a rocket ship. We went from 1 million in revenues in 02 to 5 million in 03. But most of that in Q4. And so the most important date in my life professionally, in fact, probably to this date, is August 15 of 2003, when the check from Sprint Mobile arrived for $500,000 that made us profitable. And when you're profitable, you're a master of your own destiny. And so we did $5 million in 2003, $50 million in 2004, $200 million in 2005. Wow. Uh, I sold the company, and this time for cash, having learned a lesson to a publicly traded competitor, <laughs> in June of 04 for $80 million, And I owned 53.7% of my company. So I had a very nice outcome at the age of 29. And I actually stayed after I sold the company for 18 months because it was for the first time really part of a publicly traded company. I needed to learn SOX compliance, Section 404. I figured it was skill set useful for the future. There were two things you touched on. I want to hit on both of them. The first is when you're in that situation where you can't make payroll and you're effectively trying to fake it till you make it, how do you think about the difference between being like high integrity in that situation and then some of the other situations, Theranos being the most pronounced these days, where somebody crosses the line and they're lying, but you're just trying to keep things going? True. So lessons learned, I suspect, is in entrepreneurship, you want to ask for forgiveness and not permission, except in two exceptions. One is healthcare, and where you definitely don't want to be lying on like the effectiveness of your underlying drugs and processes. And two is financial services. Prosper launched, for instance, before Lending Club, but they violated the SEC rules. They were shut down, which is why Lending Club ended up winning in the category, even though they ultimately had other issues. And so when it comes to these two, you need to do things correctly. The rest, master forgiveness, not permission. I mean, think of Uber or Airbnb, right? If they tried to play by the rules, they probably they would have never existed. Yeah. And the other is timing, which is you saw that ringtones weren't in the US, but then there's a dearth of capital and timing. How do you think about bringing together ideas and marketplace readiness? It made no sense in a way they wouldn't be big in the US. If it was big in every other country, in fact, one of the key lessons I've learned over the years is that humans are frankly, identical around the world. Individual humans want to have a sense of meaning in their lives. They want to be entertained. They want to communicate. And ideas that work in one place have a tendency to work in another because the underlying needs that we have are the same. And so when you see the slag, there's usually a market structural reason for it. And I realized that that market structure was going to go away. We had different networks that were not interconnected for messaging, and there were no payment systems. 
But given how popular and successful and what the margins were of these types of products in the rest of the market and how they were benefiting the operators in general, I knew it was going to come to the US uh, sooner or later. And the lack of capital in a way was a blessing because there were few companies that could have done this, few that were well capitalized, but they just didn't care. And this was not their mission. So that was perfect for me. So you sell this, you hang around for a little while, and then you get on to your third real business. Yeah. So I really knew I wanted to go back to entrepreneurship and I wanted to go back to my first love, marketplaces. I'd seen the rise of Craigslist and Craigslist was becoming a force to reckon with in the US and part of the fabric of society. But even back in the day, I already hated the user interface. They were already full of spam and scam. So I went to Craig, Jim, the CEO at that time and like, hey, let me buy it from you or let me run it. I'll do it for free, by the way. I Just give me some equity. Now, of course, I was 29. And even though I've had a number of successes, maybe I wasn't the most credible, but I think the fundamental issue is their ethos and their DNA was just so profoundly different. They, in a way, kind of lucked into that business and the network effects were so powerful that it kept going, but they didn't really care to improve it. And so I was like, I can do this better. And by the way, if you have to pick a competitor, someone who doesn't care and doesn't care about winning is the best. And now I'd gone to the VCs who had wanted to back me in the last company after I was profitable. So it's funny, sometimes VCs are a little bit like lemmings. When things are going well, they want to fund you. And when, when things are not going well, they don't want to fund you. And so they had missed out. And so all of a sudden I had a bunch of VCs throwing money at me. I built a company called OLX. The idea was to build a next generation or better version of Craigslist mobile catering to women because they're the primary decision makers in all households. That is uh, mobile first and highly curated in a way that you don't have frauds, spam, scams. And raised $10 million in uh, venture money from Bessemer Venture Partners and from General Catalyst at a $28 million valuation, which for 2006 was actually rather impressive on a PowerPoint, just the beauty of being a second-time founder. And uh, we launched. And the idea is really throw spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks. We launched in 100 countries, uh, spent only 50K per country, but it is 5 million at the end of the day. And it really took off in four. It really, really took off in Portugal and Pakistan. And it took off in India and Brazil now because of the economics and the scale of the markets. We obviously decided to focus on India and Brazil and, of course, kept Portugal and Pakistan going because they're doing so well. We shut down the others. We went down to four. We completely focused scaled in those markets dramatically. And then once we became big in those, started going back to two more countries. And everything was going extraordinarily well until 2009. We're at over 100 million users a month, part of the fabric society in like 20, 30 countries. And then there was this publicly traded competitor from Europe, a company called Shiftstead at the time, now called Adavinta, decided to go and attack us in our core markets. They started spending hundreds of millions of dollars in TV advertising, promoting their competitor in Brazil and in Portugal. I mean, they spent 50 million in Portugal. They spent 300 million in TV in Brazil. And little by little, our market share is starting ebbing, even though we marketplace are beautiful because usually once you're a hyper dominant, you know, no one can break in. But $300 million is a lot of money. We were dominant, but not hyper dominant. So in 2010, went to my VCs. I'm like, look, good news, we're doing well. Bad news is I have to stop monetizing, bring my revenues to zero, and we need to spend a couple hundred million in TV ads in wonderful places like Pakistan and Zimbabwe. 
And had we been, I think, in 2015, 16, or 17 in the Tiger Globals of the world that existed, I think it would have happened. But in 2010, the appetite was not quite there. So I ended up selling the business to uh, NASPERS or Process. Actually, I didn't sell my stake. The VC sold out and I became part of NASPERS and they funded me and they gave you almost a billion dollars to fight the war. And we won the war. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars in TV as well. We ended up merging 51 for us, 49 for our competitors. And the company is now ginormous. We're now 330 million unique visitors a month, 11,000 employees. We're the leading classified site in Brazil and all of Latin America and Russia and all of Eastern Europe, in India, Pakistan, and all Southeast Asia, and in the UAE and all the Middle East. It's part of the fabric society. It is Craigslist mixed with eBay in most of these countries, absolutely crushing it. Now in 2013, we had established all this, and now it's part of a ginormous uh, publicly traded company, and it wasn't so much fun. I'm like, okay, let's sign move on and uh, go on to the next thing. So before we talk to this path that you took into the investing side, that's a lot of experience from ground zero startup to running big businesses. What are the key lessons that you took away? So a few lessons. First lesson is you can be good in multiple categories. People have a tendency to pigeonhole you in whatever it is that you start in. So after I did the mobile content company and was successful, all the other VCs and everyone was approaching me to be on the board of mobile companies, to be launching mobile companies. The reality is we are adaptable. We can learn very quickly. And even categories that are seemingly complicated from crypto to biotech, et cetera, you can actually become knowledgeable and not expert level as you're not going to be a researcher in the field, but good enough that you're going to be able to operate in the field and build a company of far abreast. And so most humans, I think, put blinders and limit the scope of opportunities that they have, whereas you can actually pursue your curiosity wherever it takes you. And you can learn and become very good in many different categories. What have you found is the best path to learning something new? Well, in 2021, it's a lot easier than ever before because you can go to YouTube and you can go to Reddit and you can go to Substack and there's like infinite amount of information and anything. The best way to learn is often building something. In my life, often I didn't know what I didn't know. And <laughs> so I didn't know, A, what was impossible when I had to did it, but also didn't know, like when I launched the classified company, I didn't even know that ginormous publicly traded European company existed. I didn't know the importance of SEO. And yet within two years, SEO was 70% of the traffic. And then eventually we had a pivot. Sometimes being naive and not having that exact answers is actually helpful coming in a category, but reading a lot and frankly executing. Right now, as I'm getting smart in crypto, I'm building a crypto project for fun. I'm learning to code in Solidity and Rust. And it's hard, but it's interesting. Yeah. How about other key lessons? Two key lessons. In the first company, I was very young, and I had to choose to surround myself by a team. And the VCs were pushing for a lot of more experienced people. And there's some roles where experience matters, and there's some roles where actually decisiveness, uh, quickness of mind is actually more fundamental. And in startups especially, where you don't want to be ruling by consensus, it's better to be wrong, but to decide quickly. You want people that are decisive. And so you don't want to be ruling by committee. And having people who are aligned culturally with you is a lot better. And so the way I build most startups is we take an estimated guess as to what the correct approach is, but then we multivariate test everything. We throw spaghetti on the wall and we learn, especially when you have something at scale like OLX. When you have 300 million unique visitors a month, we were like 20 million a day. Everything you do is statistically significant. And as a result, you can have infinite 1% improvements that are statistically significant. And you do that 
hundred times over and you have something that's game-changingly better. And so multivariate tussling, throwing spaghetti at the wall, which means having intellectual humility that like you don't know what the correct answer is. Your consumers may not know either. That's why I don't love focus groups. Observe their behavior, give them choices, and then just go down the rabbit hole and follow the funnel until you get the correct answer. And number three, when you think through VCs that are right for you, really consider that it's a marriage. They're going to be with you in the good times and the bad times. For the very first company, I took the investor with the biggest balance sheet, give you the highest valuation. But A, a high valuation in a way can be a trap because if you don't live up to the valuation of the expectations, you're setting yourself up for failure. And number two, our interests were ultimately not aligned. He didn't see himself as a financial investor. He saw himself as a strategic investor. And so really pick the right partners for you and people that are going to have your back no matter what. And don't try to optimize for dilution or valuation. Really do you know what's right for the company and what's right for you. So when you've had this series of successes in building businesses, what led you to start investing? So the funny thing is I started investing essentially at the same time I started building companies. So my very first investment came in 98, you know, at the same time I built the first company. Because by virtue of being a consumer-facing internet CEO that was very visible to the public, a lot of other entrepreneurs approached me for capital. Now, in the early days, I had very little capital. So I was putting more sweat equity and advisory shares and a little bit of capital. And I thought actually long and hard, should I be investing? Is investing alongside running global multinational corporations a distraction from my core underlying mission? And realize that if I could articulate lessons learned to others, it actually meant I internalized them and made me a, a better founder if I had like these heuristics and, and theses that I could articulate. And number two, by meeting all these founders, it kept my fingers on the pulse of the market. I really understood the best practices and what the bleeding edge in tech in every category. And that also made me a better founder. And so from the get-go, started investing. Now, because I was mostly building marketplaces, except for the Zingy interlude, I decided I couldn't allocate too much time to being an investor. And so I decided I was only going to focus on marketplaces because I had pattern recognition. And I could decide very quickly. And I created a set of heuristics, essentially four decision criteria that I used to value companies in one hour. In one hour, I would decide, do I invest yes or no? I would tell the founder why, and I would send them my money. And in fact, I wouldn't even read any of the legal docs they ever sent me. I auto-signed or docu-signed every single doc they sent me from the investment docs all the way to the exit without even reading them. And so what were those four key criteria? So the funny thing is they're the same four criteria that we use today. Now it's two one-hour calls instead of one one-hour call because there's someone taking the first calls for me. But it's number one, do we like the team? Now every VC in the world will tell you, I only invest in extraordinary people. The issue is that's a highly subjective. And so I thought long and hard, what is it that makes for extraordinary founding teams? And for me, it's a team where the founder is both extremely eloquent, who's a visionary, and not or, and knows how to execute. So someone who is both a visionary and an execution machine. And the Venn diagram intersection of those two is actually rather small. And so you eliminate a lot of founders there because you have a lot of visionaries who don't really know how to execute. And so you either end up with business models, you know, fab.com, or you end up with uh, visionaries who actually sell you a lie, you know, Theranos. But the opposite of someone who knows how to execute but is not an amazing salesperson doesn't work either because they don't end up building extraordinary businesses. When you have amazing oratory skills, you're going to raise money at a higher valuation, you're going to attract better people, you can get better BD deals you're going to get more PR. And so number one, an amazing team, which for me is visionaries who know how to execute. Number two, is the business compelling? Which really means, 
can we build a billion-dollar business here? And there are two underlying components here. Is, is the market big enough today and or in the future? Is the TAM at least, let's say, a billion? It doesn't need to be there today, but at least your presence in the market should lead it to become at least usually five billion for you to build a billion-hour business. And number two, are the unit economics of the business attractive? And what's interesting is most VCs actually don't focus on the unit economics, especially pre-launch. But I want the founder to have thought through what the average order value of his business is, and it better be in line with the average order value of the industry. I want him to know the cost structure of his products. I want to have him to have done landing page analysis to evaluate the customer acquisition costs that he's going to face, whether it's for through paid marketing or a sales team, et cetera, and to have a sense of his expected long-term value to CAC or LTV to CAC ratio. And in fact, they're explaining all of this to me is one of my ways of evaluating them on the team member. Do I think they're new at execute? Because if they haven't done all this work, <laughs> they, may, they may be the visionaries who don't know how to execute. Number three, are the deal terms fair? Now in tech, neither then nor today is anything cheap. But I'm looking for fair in light of the size of the opportunity, of the traction, of the quality of the team. And I have kind of this matrix in the back of my mind of traction, stage, capital requirements, and what is valuation that makes sense. And number four, is what they're building from a thesis perspective in line with the thesis of where the world is heading. And I've clear both theses for, for marketplaces and for the world at large, the future of food, the future of work, the future of automotive and real estate. And so I evaluate all companies I meet against these four criteria. In fact, we have one standardized deal memo that covers all four, which actually the deal memo is on my blog. And then I decide at that time, it was just me. So it was one, one hour meeting, I would decide if I invested or not. And so how did it evolve from just you to FJ Labs today? In 2009, I met a team that was building eBay of Latin America. And so I gave them the business plan technology for my company. In fact, we launched them from my servers in Paris in record time. And they ultimately merged with Mercado Libre and they became the leading e-commerce company in Latin America. They were a bunch of co-founders. One of the co-founders became my co-founder and co-CEO at OLX. And then one of the other co-founders was building his own startups in Latin America, was investing. And we were reintroduced in 08 or 09. He had a lot of deal flow in real estate and in travel. And he was doing more due diligence and looking at legal documents that I ever had patience for. <laughs> and so my business partner at OLX said, hey, you should work with them. He can help you on that side. So we started pooling our investments. And so by 2013, when I left OLX, we'd already made over 100 investments together. We'd already had like dozens of exits. It was doing extremely well. And we created FJ Labs, frankly, not with the idea of creating a venture fund. And in fact, at that point in time, I evaluated what do I want to do next? And I had a whole slew of ideas. And the one that stuck and that was working was um, investing my own capital in either building companies, and I'm still building one or two companies a year or investing in startups. And so that startup took on a life of its own. It was all personal capital. That's 2013. What's gone on between then and now? So now we're a team of 33. We are four partners, two associates, and one analyst. And then in addition to that, we have two entrepreneurs in residence that are looking to build companies. But in the meantime, they take investment calls as well. And two apprentices are future entrepreneurs in residence. So we have 11 people filtering deals. And then we have an entire back office team of 22 people, including the platform team, the finance team, et cetera. Every week right now, we get 150 deals inbound. And in fact, we're extraordinarily privileged. I mean, because of our positioning and our brand, the deals come to us. 
which is an amazing quality as well for the people on the team. Because if you look at the associates or analysts and most other venture firms, they spend all their time deal sourcing and cold calling, analyzing LinkedIn. We have the opposite problem. We're drowning under the fire hose of deals and we have to filter through the deals. So right now we get 150 deals in about a week. They get randomly assigned to one of the team members. The team member reviews whether or not we should take a call. We ended up taking a call with about 50 of these. It's a one-hour call, which actually follows the same deal memo and the same four heuristics we defined before. Every Tuesday from 10 to 12, we have an investment committee meeting where we review the deal memos from the week before. For four, five, six, seven of them, we take a second call. So one of the partners takes a second call, another one-hour call that we don't make the founders repeat their first call. We dive deeper into the ideas that we want to challenge. We write another deal memo. And then the second investment committee meeting the week after, we decide if we invest or not. And we tell them why yes or why not. What do you believe about success in this style of investing that allows this approach of just a quick decision to be successful? If you have the macro trends right in terms of what you're investing in, and if you have good read of the people, you're going to do well. AngelList did a study of all of their different mini funds on AngelList to see which ones were the most successful. And their ultimate conclusion was the more qualified deals, and of course, we need to define what qualified means, you invest in, the higher your IRR. And the approach works extremely well. It works because in venture, returns follow a power law. So the top two deals of each decade, which are the super unicorns, create 40% of the value. The next 20 deals, which are like decacorns, create another 20% of the value. The next 100 deals that are the unicorns create another 20% of the value, and the rest is everything else. And by virtue of being so many deals, you end up being all the deals that create most of the value. And so you get all the returns. Now, of course, despite the fact that we're extraordinarily prolific, we still only invest in 3% of all the deals that we see. So the approach works. Now, I didn't know it would work originally. This is not a reflection of, I've done an analysis of like historical trends and venture, and therefore a diversified portfolio is the best way to go. It's more a reflection of my personality. I like meeting founders and listening to their stories and helping them fulfill their dreams. And as a result, I like being involved with so many different ideas. And it's more a reflection of my intellectual curiosity. It just so happens that approach also is the single most successful approach possible in venture. Now, not in any one fund life. So if you have one fund and we have 300 investments, someone else has 10 investments, and one of their 10 is going to be a 100x exit, it'll be a 10x fund. We will never be a 10x fund just because we're too diversified for that. Any one fund will never be top decile. You mentioned qualifying this deal flow that comes in. So why don't you walk me through what you're looking for, stage, geography, marketplace business? We look at every stage in every geography, in every industry, but with a specific focus on marketplaces. Of course, only online businesses. And so the reason we go from 150 to 50 in terms of like taking calls, so 150 deals come inbound and we only take 50 of these, as many of these are just out of scope for us. They're in biotech, they're in hardware, they're in space tech. Now we'll do things in healthcare or in space if it's a marketplace where the dynamics are the same and we can recognize the pattern recognition is the same. I mean, it's pretty insane how similar the marketplaces play out, whether you're in petrochemicals or oil services workers or, or an Uber type marketplace. And so the business model pattern recognition is extraordinary. And then it applies in every geography, in every industry, in every stage. Now, if you look at our portfolio to date on the 773 companies, we're 55% US and Canada, 25% Europe, 10% Brazil and India, 10% rest of the world. And by rest of the world, I mean like Vietnam, India, Nigeria, Kenya. In 
capital allocation were 50% pre-seed to seed, 50% beyond words. Now, we are obviously from a number of deals. There are many more C than A, many more A than B, many more B than C, given the way the venture funnel flows. In terms of business model, we're 70% marketplaces, 30% other. Now, the other falls in one of three buckets. Bucket number one, it's stuff that supports marketplaces. So tools that make marketplaces more efficient. Bucket number two is things that garner my personal intellectual interest and curiosity. So we've been doing a lot of stuff in climate of late. And number three, founders we backed in the past that have done well for us, we will back them blindly in whatever they do next. And so let me give you an example. We had backed the Vettery founders. They built a company called Labor Marketplace, which we sold to Deco for $100 million. We made 8.5 extra money. We did really well. We loved them. We loved working with them. And they came back to us and they said, hey, we're building this uh, electric self-flying taxi company. We're pre-launch, we're raising a 90 pre. Um, and I'm like, sure, here's your money. Didn't even look at the deck, you know, didn't even take a call. I'm like, we trust you, we believe in you, we're going to do this no matter what. And that company now is de- just despacked. They're called Archer and they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And you could say better lucky than good. But then again, they demonstrated they knew what they were doing and they could execute. And so for these people, we're willing to back them no matter what next time. So what is it about marketplaces that's attracted your attention as an investment strategy? What I love about marketplaces is you actually create an extraordinary amount of value for humanity. You take these markets that are opaque, fragmented, where transactions are happening through in-person, through email, through phone, and by virtue of bringing them online, you're unleashing efficiency and growing the market dramatically. And there's nothing as undervalued as a marketplace that has found product market fit. What we need to do is identify when that happens. And sometimes it's early and sometimes it's late. A company we invested rather late in that has been extraordinarily successful for us has been Coupang. Coupang is now the Amazon of Korea. They're worth, I don't know, $50 billion or so. We invested at $4 billion valuation. We'd seen them early, but first they were a Groupon and the unit economics were underwater. Then they pivoted and they were one of many Amazon players. But finally, there was a moment at a $4 billion valuation where they hit it. And that's when we invested. So even in the public markets, when these companies are there, people underestimate how quickly they can grow. But the network effects are so powerful that they lead to exponential growth. And humans don't really think very effectively in terms of exponential terms. And they don't realize that when you have 50% compounding year over year, it ends up to lead to very big numbers very quickly. I'm really curious about the benefits and the drawbacks of making decisions so quickly. So why don't you start with what have you seen that is effective about being able to decide on an investment so fast? The founders love it. We can start there. And by virtue of the founders loving it, you have a reputation in the founder community of being extraordinarily founder-friendly. And by the way, even if I pass, I will pass instantaneously and will tell them what I'm passing and what would need to change for me to change my mind. Number two... At this point, I see like four or 5,000 businesses a year. If you read Blink or any of these, or Daniel Kahneman, Think Fast Slow, or any of these books on behavioral economics and decision-making, your instinct on most things is right about 50% of the time. <laughs> so you could be flipping a coin. But in categories where you are an expert, where you've put in the hours, your instinct is more likely than not correct. And so at this point... I've seen so many of these businesses, I've met so many of these founders that I trust my instinct and I'm an ability to decide. Now, I wouldn't do that in categories I don't know, which is why I truly highly believe in the concept of circle of competence. I stick to my knitting and it works really, really well. And how about the drawbacks? 
ideally what you should do is identify the very, very best companies that are like game changing that come once in a decade and spend all your time with them and allocate all your time to them. Now, whether or not that's really possible for me to do, I'm not so sure. So you could think it's a misallocation of time in a way, because if you find Uber or Airbnb early, if that's all you do for the rest decade, you're probably going to do better than with my approach. How do you think about the risks of effectively misreading people in such a short window of time? So what's interesting is there was a 15-year period of my life where I signed every single legal doc sent to me without even reading it. And as far as I can tell, I was never screwed over. The meeting when the exit happened, I got my fair share and I invested the valuation that they said I would invest it. So most people I find are actually well-intentioned. And the amount of work that it takes to eliminate the few bad apples, I actually think in average it's not worth it. And in fact, it's not worth it because it actually decreases the user experience for all the good actors to be trying to identify the bad actors. So how do I identify people? Well, the first thing is I, I look for passion, genius, things that come across extremely quickly. One thing humans are good at, regardless of category, we're great at judging other humans. If you meet someone, you know within a minute or not, if you like the person or not, right? If you're going on a date, I think it's like within one minute, you know, and the rest is pretense. And it's the same here at this point. Like I know very quickly if I like the person, if I think they're good, if they're eloquent. Now, because I push back on their assumptions, I will question how they came out to their numbers. And so I don't just take their story as is. I push back along the way and I see how they deal with the pressure of my pushback. Of course, if they crumble under those assumptions, they're not going to be able to execute. It's my means of asserting grit because obviously it's hard to tell in one hour if they have grit or not, but the way they deal with aggressive, assertive questions or pushing back on their, on their assumptions is a good indication of whether they have it or not. If you've looked back on deals you've done, probably more deals that didn't work out than have. I'm curious how you've thought about whether spending one more hour with someone might have revealed something you didn't see in the first hour. I'm not sure. When I look at why companies fail, there's a whole slew of reasons. The main reasons are the company didn't reach product market fit. Don't think I could have found that before. Number two is co-founders fighting or having a fundamental life event change that leads them to want to leave the company. Three, sometimes you're killed by competition. But actually, the main thing founders worry about is competition. And yet the main thing that kills companies is product market fit, making the unit economics work, and co-founders fighting. And I'm not sure I could have teased that out in one more meeting. We tried doing reference checks on founders and realized that they were a negative signal. Some of the very best founders were horrible employees. They would talk back to their bosses. <laughs> they, they, they would work on their startup and at their job. They had the worst references. And some of the companies I didn't invest in were because some other VCs told me, oh, I did reference checks with their employer and they hate them. In hindsight, those were actually the hallmarks of a fantastic founder who is going to be gritty, who's going to stand his ground, who's not going to fall under the political pressure of an organization. And so I completely stopped doing reference checks on founders, at least from that point on. Will you do them with your team now, just away from the idea of, do you think they're going to be a good founder, but are they a good person? Definitely. We want to back good people. People have like a reputation. Are they coming back with their friends? Are they coming back with people that have worked for them in the past? It kind of comes across. It also comes across in the way they present, the way they pitch. Are they arrogant, condescending? Do they listen? Even the way they present. And yes, we have a no asshole policy. Life is too short to work with assholes, regardless of how smart they may be and how intellectual they may be. 
So once you've done all these deals and you've got this big portfolio of companies, how do you spend your time trying to help them out? So we have one superpower, which is to help them fundraise. What I didn't describe is the 150 deals we get every week, we get them from three sources. One third of those deals comes from other VCs because we don't really compete with other VCs. We don't lead, we don't price, we don't take board seats, we write small checks, we're not competing for allocation. In fact, we're not even ownership sensitive per se. If we wanna write 300K check, there's only 100K, we'll take the 100K. We'd rather be in than not in. As a result, every 12 weeks, we sit down with the top 100 VCs in the world. We'll sit down with everyone at every stage. And I mean, Andreessen, Greylock, Bessemer, General Catalyst, Tiger, First Round, I mean, we'll really cover everything. It's a really symbiotic relationship. We bring them all of our best deals such that they can invest in them. And of course, we have such a large portfolio and then we have so many deals from the earlier stages coming to be funding that we have extraordinary number of deals to send them. Number two, they send us their best deals in marketplaces because they want a perspective and they only send us one or two deals a year and we'll send them maybe 20 or 30, but it actually works. And number three, of course, the founders love it because they get funded by the best VCs. You can imagine that if, General Catalyst did your A, they're not going to introduce you to Greylock for the B, but we will. And so our superpower is getting you funded. When we close the investment, we make you fill this online form on burn, cash position, runway, and expected time of the next fundraise. One to two months before you go to market, we walk you through the pitch, work at the deck, create the list of VCs you should be talking to, eliminating competitors, only going after the ones at the right stage or the right category. And we create an online tracker and we make all the intros and we keep track of the conversion rate. We keep track of the feedback from the VCs. We guide you to term sheet and and we get you funded. Now, we don't do that for all of them. We do it typically for the fifth to 35th percentile companies in the portfolio. The top 5% usually don't need us. And the bottom 50th percentile We'll tell them where they stand. We'll tell them what we think they need to do in order to get there. But we obviously don't make the intros. That said, we'll recommend maybe a seed extension or an A extension rather than going for the next round. That is extraordinarily effective. I mean, the founders love it because they're always raising. You just raise your A, you're ready to be thinking about your B. Until you're profitable and then you're a master of your own destiny, you need to be fundraising. And so our ability to get them funded is our superpower and they love us for it. You've had all this experience building and running these marketplace businesses. Do you have time to help these businesses impart the knowledge that you have? So the fundraising part has been essentially automated. We have a platform person, we make you fill in the forms, and then we know exactly how to do it. To impart the knowledge that I have, this one is less automated. It's more on an as-requested basis. So founders reach out when they need help in terms of how do I measure elasticity of supply and demand? What is the correct rake or business model? Should the rake be on the supply side or the demand side? I take two or three of these calls per week, which actually is still 100, 150 companies per year that I typically talk to and help. But of course, it's a quarter of the portfolio. And in this case, it's really as needed. So you mentioned talking to VCs is one of the three ways you source deals. What are the other two? One third, 50 of the 150 is VCs. One third is the founders we backed in the past. We've backed 1,500 founders to date. They come back for the next company. They send us their friends. They send us their employees who become entrepreneurs. And number three, actually cold inbound. I think most VCs have this auto delete or send into a black hole, all inbound emails to their email, which is like pitch decks at vc.com. We actually look at all the inbound deal flow. Most of it comes to my LinkedIn and we review it. And some of the very best deals we've ever done have come that way from founders who are not well connected because they were not in SF or New York, but they were extraordinarily 
gritty and some of them had extraordinary traction. We one of the, some of the best companies. I mean, an example, we invested in a rewards company in Brazil called Milius that was in a tertiary city. They had extraordinary traction, but because they were in tertiary city and they were not very eloquent, their English wasn't great, no one wanted to back them. They had like B-level traction. We invested at seed-level valuation. We helped them get funded, and they went public last year and like three, 400x return, one of our best returns ever. I'm curious to turn a little bit to the dynamics of marketplace businesses. What have you learned about how these businesses work and succeed? So of course, when you have a marketplace business, you have a chicken and egg problem where you need to figure out if you start with the supply or the demand. And of course, the, the answer is it depends, but most often you should start with the supply because the supply is financially motivated to be in the marketplace. And so when I launched OLX, I went to the car dealers and the real estate brokers. And when I launched Auckland, I went to the coin collectors and the SEM collectors and the collectibles collectors to have them put their supply online. And I told them, look, we're small, we're early, we may not sell, but it doesn't cost you anything. Why not? It's an incremental distribution channel for you for free. And as a result, it's actually reasonably easy to get supply. Now, in modern marketplaces, especially local services one, it's actually often better to go hyper-local. You curate your supply to the very best level, and then you focus on bring them demands. And what I've learned is on a product marketplace, once you have a 15 to 20% sell-through rate, ideally 25%, but you can start at 15-20%. Or in a labor marketplace, when you can start representing 15-20% of the revenues of the supply, you have basically have reached liquidity. And so once you reach that level, you re-increase the supply again, and then rematch demand. And you keep doing that forever. There are a lot of pitfalls. Like some people just go and try to put a million listings immediately on their platform, or a million suppliers. If you do that, and you don't have demand for it, they're going to churn because they're not going to be seeing any bend, they're not going to be engaged. Even when someone contacts them, it's not going to work. So matching supply and demand very finitely is really key. When you see all these companies, I imagine you get an interesting window on what people are trying to build and where the world's going. And you mentioned earlier, thematically, if you have the right thesis and you're sort of in the right flow of ideas, good things happen. What are you seeing today about what the world is building for the next 10 years or longer? So the things that I find the most interesting on a 10-year horizon are things that are fringe that then become mass market. This is where you get the biggest creation of opportunity. I'll start by telling you what I think is not coming next, even though it's been hyped or overhyped. So one virtual reality, I think, is not happening anytime soon. I need to think about what's investable right now, which means it has to be a big market in the next three to five years as the product comes to market. And you need to think of an exit in like five to seven years. So it can't be 15 years into the future. So for something to be investable today, the market needs to be kind of there in three to five years. So VR doesn't meet the requirement. And so in VR, we now have sub 10 million users across many different platforms with high latency. The quality of the graphics is way lower than what you have in your PS5 or Xbox X. You get motion sickness because of the latency and there's no killer app. And it's not changing anytime soon and it's too expensive. I think you need to be at a 299 price point, something that's super light and pleasurable. Number two, not coming as well, augmented reality. Now, the fact that we're interacting with our phones in a tiny screen, I mean, relatively tiny, as opposed to the world at large, hunched over with limited speed of interface, doesn't really make sense. And if you go to the MIT Media Lab, you see that they have these wonderful 
helmets with like 256 electrodes that you can connect to your brain. And with a lot of training, you can kind of convert your your thoughts to text. And so there's mind reading technologies coming into the future. And when you combine that with like intelligent contact lenses and or glasses that have lasers that can write on your retina, you can imagine a future where you essentially control your smartphone equivalent device through your mind and you have it displayed in your field of vision. And that's way more convenient. Like when I meet someone, it'll remind me when it's the last time I met them, the name of their spouse and everything there is to know. The problem is this is kind of like where voice recognition was in 95. It's highly inaccurate. It's extraordinarily expensive. In this case, we're like 10 to 15 years away. Now it will come. And when it comes, it will replace this multi-trillion dollar industry of smartphones, but it's far away into the future. Number three, self-driving. The technology is almost getting there, but regardless of the technology that wins, humans are more tolerant of other humans' mistakes than they are of computers' mistakes. And so it will not be enough for self-driving cars and vehicles to have the same level of safety as humans. They'll have to be 100x better. And given the expectation of 99.99999% efficiency, it doesn't look like we're going to be self-driving and mass in the next five years. Now, doesn't mean you can't invest in it and there is elements of it that will go self-driving, but it won't be a major platform shift yet. That's probably in the second part of the decade, not the first part of the decade. I'm still interested in the next five years. Now, the things that are now getting more interesting that are getting there, the first thing I'll put as a maybe, it's uh, healthy living and healthy lifestyles per large. Now, in the elite's there clearly is a trend for people to be healthier. They're investing in sleep. They're investing in meditation and yoga and being intermittent fasting, gluten-free, everything organic. The technology is allowing, is deflationary. It's allowing for food to become cheaper and people are going to have access to more healthy organic choices. And all these apps like Calm and Headspace and will allow you to improve your well-being at large. Now, the problem is this one takes willpower. And if humans had willpower, we'd all be you know, thin and healthy uh, <laughs> and not be eating fast food. So unclear whether this becomes a mega trend. Historically, the habits of the elites have been copied by the masses. So it may become more of a trend. Now, the three that I think really are coming, one is a revolution in entrepreneurship created by the no-code revolution. When I created my first company in 98, I needed to build my own computers. Then we needed to build our own data centers. And I needed to have Oracle databases and Microsoft web servers. Like just to turn the lights on, it was millions of dollars and a level of technical competence that very few people had. The cost of launching startups has declined over the last 20 years, first with the open source revolution, and then with the cloud computing revolution. But you still need to know to code. And now there's this no-code revolution where you can build websites with no coding knowledge. The first Part of that was like Shopify, Squarespace, where Shopify is a $100 billion company, where the GMV, I think, is now larger than Amazon's, built on the back of millions of mini micro-entrepreneurs who don't really know how to code, but build these beautiful e-commerce websites. Now, that's the very first application. But there is no code technologies coming down the pipe that are going to allow anyone to build essentially anything. And as a result, you can imagine that it's no longer just the computer science majors from Stanford who are going to be building startups, but it's going to be art history majors and musicians and artists at large. And it's going to unleash a wave of creativity that's mind-boggling and unimaginable. We're going to see an amazing democratization, both in terms of the type of people building companies, the geographies in which they're built, both globally, but also within countries. It'll no longer just be in New York and San Francisco or LA. It'll be in tertiary cities as well. Number four, 
I think psychedelics. Psychedelics have been fringe for a long time, but it's interesting. If you actually study what uh, the history of legal substances that are really bad for you, like sugar, like caffeine, like alcohol, like tobacco, and you compare it to the history of psychedelics, especially psilocybin, so magic mushrooms or acid, and you realize that the former are addictive and toxic for you, and the latter are actually mostly beneficiary, neurogenesis, or non-toxic and non-addictive, you think there's something really wrong. And there's more and more evidence coming to the fore. And we're seeing, I think, a revolution in the thinking of REM psychedelics. And now you have companies like Atai, which is publicly traded, that is doing medical testing and verification of the benefits of different psychedelics. And it kind of happened already once with cannabis. We went from something that was criminalized to then being medicalized, to then decriminalized, to then legalized. And that led to the creation of countless of companies in the category. I think the same thing is going to happen with psilocybin, with ketamine, with LZ in the coming decade. And it'll create a lot of investing opportunity. And then last but not least, crypto. The world of traditional finance is old and broken. It was created hundreds of years ago, and there are many things that make no sense. When you buy or sell a stock, it takes days to settle. Markets are open 35 hours a week. If I wire someone money, it's really hard to track, and it takes days to arrive. And the fees involved because of all the intermediaries are super high. There's no reason none of this should be instantaneous and essentially quasi-free. When every purchase we make in the West today, there's a 1.5% Visa MasterCard tax on our payment system. Imagine that every payment was free. It would unleash a level of innovation in financial services, I think, that is mind-boggling because all of a sudden microtransactions could exist in a way that they don't today. And at the same time, the web today is controlled by these massive intermediaries, the Googles, the Apples of the world, the Facebooks, who take their their slice of the pie and a rather large slice of the pie of that. And they're the gatekeepers and they own all the data. And so imagine a world where you own your own data and there are none of these gatekeepers. And in fact, you're rewarded for your own action. So we're seeing an entire reinvention of finance and frankly of the web in a decentralized way. And that's going to go from fringe to mainstream, despite the fact that there are bubbles in that market right now. The bubble will burst, but the same thing that happened in 99 will lay the foundation of the world to come. So those are the trends. And those are just the mega trends. You mentioned the awareness of a bubble back in the day and valuations being really high today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the venture ecosystem and your position in it. So valuations are frothy in the late stage today, driven essentially by negative real rates. In a negative real rate environment, if you believe the rates were going to remain low for a long time, you can actually justify a lot of higher valuations. And as a result, both in the public markets and the pre-IPO markets, we're seeing very, very high valuations. Not nearly as high, by the way, as in 98.99 in any respect, but very, very high. Now, what's interesting is in the earlier stages, the mean has gone up, but the median has not gone up all that much. So yes, if you're a second time or third time founder and you've been successful in the past, or if you happen to be in a category that is extremely frothy, capital is being thrown at you at very high valuations. And as a result, then those numbers are so large that they distort the mean. But for a first time founder, the valuations haven't changed all too much. So until a few years ago, the pre-seed rounds where you were raising 750K at like three to five pre, maybe now you're raising one at six. Your seed round, you were raising two at eight. Now you're raising three at 12 or four at 12. Your A round, you were raising whatever, seven at 18 pre, and now you're raising 
10 at 30 pre. It's gone up, but it's not very, very distorted. The outliers are the ones that get all the press and that distort the mean. But in light of the size of the opportunity and the scale at which the companies are being built, you can still see economic sense in, in a lot of this. And frankly, even in crypto, right? A lot of the crypto deals, when they launch, are extraordinarily profitable. Think of Uniswap. It's built by 30 people. And they do up to $7 billion a day in trading volume, taking 60 bips. It's an amazing business. How do you think about funding one of the businesses in your portfolio across stages? So we are a cross-stage fund kind of for that reason. We want to be able to back them across time. Now, of course, we never lead them. So we need to have these relationships with the other VCs to help them. The way we try to have our founders think about it is if the capital is there and we don't think it will necessarily be there in the future forever, given the frothiness of the world we're in today, you might as well take it. The way we think about dilution is if you're going to create more value than the dilution that you're incurring by raising money, you should do the deal. It's more about how much value you're creating the capital you're raising that matters. Fabrice, before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I'm a bit of a polymath and renaissance man. I, so I have many hobbies and interests. From a sports perspective, I'm a tennis player, I'm a kite surfer, and I'm a heli skier. I love reading. I read 50 to 100 books a year. I love writing, and I try to write daily, and I write on my blog. I'll stick to those, but I guess I have many interests in general. What's your most important daily habit? Expressing gratitude. Expressing gratitude for everything I have in life and for where we are and reminding myself, regardless of the circumstances, that I'm extraordinarily privileged to be where I am. What's your biggest pet peeve? It's nothing I could really complain about. <laughs> life has been extraordinarily generous to me in general. I lead the life I've dreamt of living, and I'm beyond happy. And part of the reason is little things don't get to me. I wish there was instantaneous teleportation everywhere around the world, but I wouldn't call it <laughs> a pet peeve. Then I could see my friends and family easier. It would improve my quality of life. But no, nah, I don't think I have a pet peeve from a personal perspective. How about on the investment side? Now, the investment side, I definitely have a pet peeve, which is you would think that with the track record that we have, it'd be actually reasonably easy to raise capital. You would think investors or LPs would be more forward thinking and more creative in terms of realizing, hey, if something's working, even though it doesn't necessarily meet their personal heuristics and not all their T's are crossed and not their I's are dotted, it should be something they should be considering and be more open to considering. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Probably Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, because they were the people I looked up to as role models when I was 10 years old and onwards that ultimately led me down the entrepreneurial journey. Never met them for real. I shook their hands at different conferences, but never had a proper conversation, but they allowed me to dream. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I don't really have regrets because even though I've made a lot of mistakes, had they not happened, it probably wouldn't be in the position I am today. So for instance, had I picked the right VC or actually the better lawyer for my first startup and I actually sold successfully, I probably would have turned out as an arrogant asshole. Like I was extraordinarily narcissistic and arrogant younger. And I think that that trait would have led me to a bad outcome, especially given that the behaviors of you know, the Steve Jobs or maybe the Travis Kalanick of the world were eating a lot of humble pie along the way, going from hero to zero and living in two dollars a day was actually helpful. So I'm not sure I would have wanted to correct these mistakes. I've made many mistakes, but I've learned along the way, and I'm not sure there's any of them I would want not to have made. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? 
gratitude, which is also part of my daily practice. Regardless of the circumstances, I mean, by virtue of the fact that we live in the West today, we are amongst the most privileged people in the world. Regardless of your economic circumstances, your daily circumstances, we're not only more privileged than almost anyone alive today, we're definitely more privileged than anyone that's ever been alive. I mean, the kings of yesteryear had a horrible quality of life compared to the quality of life that we have today at all classes of society. All right, Fabrice, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Two lessons. One is don't constrain yourself by either limits you put on yourself because, oh, I didn't study this, therefore I can't do this. You can learn anything and you can become an expert in almost anything faster than you think. So don't limit yourself neither by your limits or societal expectations. And number two, apply to your personal life the same approach of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Define the rules of the life that you want and not the rules as they are defined for you. You can create the personal, professional life that is right for you based on your needs and desires. Fabrice, fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.